Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Luke chapter 7. We'll look at verses 36 down to the end of this chapter today. Luke 7. I love it when someone's argument or attempt to persuade me exhibits some pathos. Pathos is one of Aristotle's three parts of persuasive writing or speaking. There's ethos and logos and pathos. Ethos means people are convinced by the character of the writer. Logos means people are convinced by the intellectual reasoning of the author. But pathos means persuading by appealing to people's emotions and their sympathy and their imagination. As one author put it, pathos causes them to identify with the writer's point of view and feel what the writer feels. Pathos can turn the abstractions of logic into something palpable and present. Like I said, I love it when someone's argument or sermon or writing has some pathos to it, not just cold reasoning or believe it because I'm the authority and I said so. Well, this morning's text is one of those accounts. You cannot read this story and not not have your soul stirred, I don't think. This is not just an argument of cold logic. Here the Spirit through Luke engages our hearts with the pathos of this incident. Let me read it. Begin with verse 36. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town heard that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he canceled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, well, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? 
Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You know, it's hard to describe anything without using some kind of comparison or contrast. We'll say, well, it's a lot like um, whatever, you know. Or, yeah, this is a new thing. It tastes something like uh, chicken or something. Or, um, yeah, who does, who does she remind you of? She looks a lot like so-and-so. Comparisons. It's how we define things. Well, that's what's going on in this text. There seem to be three comparisons being made in this text. There's a comparison between Jesus and the prophets. There's a comparison between the woman and the Pharisee, Simon. And there's a comparison between Jesus and the Pharisee, Simon. Each of those three comparisons teach us something. Each of those gives us one of the lessons that are our three points this morning. The first is this. Jesus knows what we are and forgives us anyway. Jesus knows what we are and forgives us anyway. This whole chapter has been about comparing Jesus with the prophets. Early on in the chapter, the, 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 the accounts showed him to be greater than the prophet Elijah, the prophet Elisha, who raised the widow's son back to life, for example. And then later on in the chapter, he's been shown to be greater than John the Baptist, who Jesus says is the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets. That comparison with the prophets continues to be uh, present in this account. That's what was on the Pharisee Simon's mind as he had Jesus over for dinner. He's trying to understand who Jesus is. Is he really a prophet or not? Well, you know the story, which we just read it during the dinner, an immoral woman... Uh, quite certainly a harlot from that town, uh, enters the room. Now, in that culture, it was a bit different than ours. Uh, There, uh, it would not be unusual for members of the public to come in and kind of stand around the walls as you were entertaining some important guest. What was unusual was for a harlot to enter a Pharisee's house. Simon the Pharisee seems to recognize this woman. She was apparently well-known in that town, but Jesus appears to not know her. Indeed, as she anoints his feet with perfume and wets them with her tears, he does nothing to stop her. And that settles the question of Jesus' identity for Simon. Simon reasons this way. Jesus doesn't know who this immoral woman is. Obviously, he doesn't know who she is. If he were truly a prophet, he would know who she is. And if he knew what a sinner she is, he would never allow her to touch him. Therefore, Jesus cannot be a prophet, as some of the people believe. Simon had his reasoning all wrapped up nice and neat, but Jesus skillfully turned Simon's thinking back on his head. By his words to Simon, Jesus shows he knows what Simon is thinking. Thus, by Simon's own criterion, a prophet would know what, who this woman is, By his own criterion, Jesus shows he is a prophet after all, for he knows what Simon's thinking. Oh, but Jesus is more than a prophet. It's not that Jesus knows, but it's not that Jesus is ignorant of the depravity of sinners. He knows what people are like. He knew all about this immoral woman. He knows all about you and your sin and me and my sin. 
But though Jesus knows what we are, he forgives us anyway. Dear people, here we see the absurdity of trying to hide from the Lord. He knew what Simon was thinking, even while Simon was sitting there judging Jesus. He knew all about this woman, even though she probably tried to remain anonymous. As Psalm 139 makes clear, we cannot hide from the Lord. He knows. There we read, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up into the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn and settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will cover, will hide me, and the light, uh, uh, say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. Or as the Lord said through the prophet Jeremiah, Am I only a God nearby, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can anyone hide in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. You see, our hope is not that somehow we can hide and God will never find out what we're really like. Though some of us spend our whole lives trying to do that. Our hope is that God's grace is greater than our sin. Our hope is the truth that this text sets before us. That though Jesus knows what we are, he forgives us anyway. At the very end of the text, this baffle the people. Who is this who even forgives sins, they say. They'd never seen such one, not even among the prophets of old. And it continues to baffle people today. But it's absolutely true. Though Jesus knows what we are, he forgives. Then there's a second comparison going on here, which brings us to our second point. Being forgiven makes us love the Lord. Being forgiven makes us love the Lord. The second comparison contained in this text is a comparison between Simon the Pharisee and this immoral woman. Jesus himself makes this comparison uh, and and makes something of it by his little parable about the two debtors. Actually, we know that at uh, banquets, at feasts, at dinner parties, it was kind of a common practice to present riddles uh, to your guest or to your host and uh, some bantering about what this riddle means. Well, that's what Jesus does here. Jesus' parable is quite simple. It goes like this. Two men owe money to a lender. One owes 500 denarii, the other owes 50. Now, denarius was a coin worth one day's work. So it depends on who you are, what one day's work is worth. But let's just say a day's work is worth, say, $100 in our culture. That means the one debtor owed his lender $50,000, and the other owed him $5,000. Both significant amounts, but the one much greater than the other, ten times greater. And neither had the ability to pay. But in the parable, the kind-hearted lender decided to cancel the debts of both of them. Now Jesus asked, which one of them will love him more? Well, Simon seems to be insulted at such a simple riddle. This is no challenge to his mind. 
I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. Exactly, says Jesus, and the trap is sprung. So Jesus proceeds to make his point. He compares the Pharisee Simon to this immoral woman who Simon condemned. Simon didn't wash Jesus' feet when he came into the house, didn't even give him water to wash them himself. But the woman washed Jesus' feet with her tears, dried it with her hair. Simon didn't even give Jesus a perfunctory greeting kiss, as was the custom. But the woman couldn't stop kissing Jesus' feet. Simon gave Jesus no oil to freshen up his face. But the woman lavished her best perfume on Jesus' feet. So what's the difference? What accounts for this radically different behavior? This immoral woman knows Jesus had forgiven her. Simon apparently does not. Or does not feel a need for forgiveness. As Jesus sums it up, he who has been forgiven much loves much. He who has been forgiven little, loves little. Now Simon the Pharisee was undoubtedly grateful to God. Expressing love and gratitude to God was part of the Jewish liturgy. He did that regularly, daily perhaps. But the woman who had been forgiven was grateful in a way that was uncontainable by any liturgy. Her heart was moved with devotion, with shameless gratitude and love for her Savior. Being forgiven makes us love the Lord. You see, some cause and effect relationships are so certain that the absence of the effect calls into question whether the cause is even present. It's true in everyday life. You go to light your barbecue grill, and then you notice it's not getting hot. It's not lit. Someone tells you the check's in the mail, and two weeks later you don't have a check yet? They're lying. It's not in the mail. Girl, some guy tells you you're the light of his life, but he never calls you up, never comes to see you? You're not. So it is with forgiveness. If someone claims to have been forgiven but has little or no devotion to the Lord, you can pretty, be pretty sure he or she doesn't know much about forgiveness. For being forgiven makes us love the Lord. So when I challenge you to examine how uncontainable your love really is for Jesus. This woman was undaunted by what people thought of of her. How about you? Her love for Jesus dwarfed her concern for the propriety of social convention. What about your love? She willingly went where she was not welcome, spent her wealth, endured people's stares just to express her love for the Savior who forgave for her. To what lengths would you go? To Show your love. For being forgiven will move your heart to love Jesus. It's interesting to note that some of our greatest hymns of gratitude and devotion were 
written by some of the most broken, messed up sinners who experienced forgiveness. I think of William Cooper. This was a man whose life was in turmoil. He was in and out of an insane asylum. On several occasions, he tried to commit suicide. He was constantly depressed. He died delusional. But in the midst of the agony of his soul, he understood God's forgiveness. And he wrote, there's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though as vile as he, wash all my sins away. Ever since by faith I saw the stream, his Uh, Thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme. And shall be. Till I die. Or consider his friend. The once wretched, rebellious, heartless, cruel, slave trader John Newton. You all know what he wrote about forgiveness. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost. Now I'm found. I was blind. But now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear. The hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I've already come. It's grace that brought me safe thus far. And grace will lead me home. In fact, these two old, messed up, broken sinners wrote a whole hymnal together. It's called the Olney Hymnal. 349 hymns written by the two of them. Because being forgiven stirs up devotion and makes us love the Lord. And finally, there's one more comparison here, which brings us to our third point. If Jesus welcomes sinners, so must we. If Jesus welcomes sinners, so must we. The third comparison is in this text is between Jesus and Simon the Pharisee. This is probably the most obvious of the comparisons. Fred Craddock describes this sharp contrast between Simon and Jesus. He says, here are two religious leaders... Suddenly in the presence of a sinful woman. One has an understanding of righteousness which causes him to distance himself from her. The other understands righteousness to mean moving toward her with forgiveness and a blessing of peace. Wow, that difference could hardly be more profound, could it? One moves away from the sinful woman. The other moves toward her to forgive and bless her. This contrast between Simon and Jesus is the contrast between the law and the gospel. What can the law do? It points out how sinful our sin is by its righteous standard. And where we're shown to be sinful, the law condemns us. That's Simon the Pharisee. He knew the law. He knew what kind of woman this was. 
And so he condemned her. He wanted nothing to do with her. She was unclean. For she was unrighteous. But in Jesus, the grace of God has been revealed. Oh, the law's not wrong. It's right in its standard of righteousness. It's just powerless to change us. It's dependent on our ability to do better. But Jesus came bringing good news that what the law was unable to do, God did send in his own son. Jesus, who had no sin, became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So Jesus comes welcoming sinners, indeed seeking sinners out. For he's come with an answer to our hopelessness. Because he died to pay the penalty of our sin, he is able to reconcile us and give us peace with God. So our passage ends with Jesus telling this woman, you are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Dear people, if all we know is God's law, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, we will inevitably be like Simon the Pharisee. When we meet broken, hurting sinners, all we'll be able to say is, you're getting what you deserve. You better shape up. God's going to judge you. But if we know Jesus, if we have ourselves encountered the gospel of God's grace, we will have a different response. When we meet broken, hurting people, we'll be able to say, Jesus invites you to come to him and be delivered. Come and find peace. Indeed, I invite you to come and join yourself to this company of the forgiven, for we're no different than you are. But Jesus has forgiven us and restored us to himself. If Jesus welcomes sinners, so must we. Unfortunately, the church has often lost its sense of being the company of the forgiven. Indeed, we sometimes thought ourselves to be the social club of the righteous ones where sinners need not apply because they're not our kind of people. So Fred Cratt begins his study of this text with an unsettling question that I pass on to you. He writes, The word of Jesus, go in peace, adds considerable pathos to the event. Where does one go? when Jesus says, go in peace. The price of the woman's way of life in the city has been the removal from the very institutions that carried the resources to restore her. The one place she's welcome is in the street among people like herself. What she needs is a community of forgiven and forgiving sinners. The story screams the need for a church. Not just any church, but one that says, 
you are welcome here. So what will we be? Are we going to be that company of the forgiven who welcomes sinners into our midst, knowing Jesus' power to transform them as he's transformed us? Or will we be a synagogue of Pharisees, parsing the law till the law eats up God's grace, meeting the sinner with a list of our expectations and making sure she knows her welcome here is dependent upon her performance? Which will it be? We come to the table this morning at the invitation of the Lord Jesus. We come only as sinners who have been shown grace in the broken body and spilled out blood of Jesus. There's no other approach to this table. Therefore, we have no choice. If Jesus welcomed sinners, so must we. Three sets of comparisons woven together in this text teach us three great truths. The first, Jesus knows what we are, but still forgives. What a comfort to the soul. The one who knows us best, faults and all, loves us the most and stands ready to forgive. Secondly, being forgiven makes us love the Lord. You know, we can come to church, we can sing the songs, we can fill the squares, all with a rather detached reverence for God. But when we understand the magnitude of complete forgiveness, nothing can restrain our gratitude and our love for the Lord. And then thirdly, if Jesus welcomes sinners, so must we. The church is not ours to redefine according to our social status and our cultural preferences. This is the company of the forgiven. Those who were dead and now are alive because of Jesus. So we have no choice. We have only this demand. If Jesus welcomes sinners, so must we. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you have loved us when we were unlovely. That you welcome us when everyone else would turn away if they really knew us. Thank you that though you know us the best, you've still loved us, forgiven us. Cause our realization of that, Lord, to take hold of our hearts to give us both a love for you that will not waver and a heart of welcome for sinners like us who need to know what you've done in us, need to have that in them. Oh, change us, Lord. Forbid that we should be like Simon, an expert in the law, without mercy, without welcome for hurting broken sinners, without the hope of Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The last time we talked about Jesus forgiving sin, someone 
raise the question, on what basis? How did Jesus forgive sins? How did Jesus forgive this woman's sins? She didn't go off of the sacrifices that the law prescribed. How's that work? Well, Jesus forgave sins and during his earthly ministry the same way God has forgiven sins throughout the ages. Romans 3 explains this to us. That God allowed these things, these debts, to be held and covered until the time came that Jesus paid the debt in full. Jesus knew why he'd come. It was a manifestation of God's grace. But his work was not complete until he hung on the cross and poured out his lifeblood for this woman and died in her place and in ours. Then his offer of forgiveness, his extending forgiveness to her, was complete and met God's justice. Jesus paid it all. That's what we celebrate today. We have no other way to come and think God's going to receive us and forgive us our sins, not because he's a good guy or because we're not that bad. God is not a good guy. He's a holy God whose wrath is a consuming fire, and we're not even close to being not that bad. But because of Jesus, our sins are paid. God's justice is satisfied and extends to us grace. Because of the body of Jesus that hung on the cross and the blood of Jesus poured out on the ground as an atoning sacrifice for us. If that's your hope, if that's where you rest, Jesus died for me, therefore I'm forgiven. Eat the supper with us. And if you don't understand that, just let it pass. Will the elders come and let's eat together. Let's pray. Thank you, dear Father, for the gospel that we hear in words, that we read in, your, in the scriptures, and that we hear, see, portrayed before our eyes, and we smell, and we touch, and we taste, and we take to ourselves. Oh, deliver us, Lord, from any perfunctory kind of um, churchy rite here. And we understand that we come to receive a new our Savior, to turn our faith toward him and to rest ourselves completely in his work on the cross by which we are forgiven and made right with you. Communicate your grace to us in a wonderful way and, and uh, uh, through, through our eating together the, this bread representing the, the body of our Lord, use it for that holy purpose we pray in his name. Amen.
When Jesus instituted the sacrament at the Last Supper, after the meal, he took the cup, said to his disciples, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed on behalf of many for the remission of sins. Drink from it, all of you. Thank you, Father, for this simple sacramental meal. So simple that we might miss its profound meaning. So simple that we ought to understand that our salvation is not something we do. It's something we simply receive because of what you have done in Jesus. So grant us, Lord, repentance and faith to turn away from every other hope and to rest ourselves wholly in our Savior and to love you with a passion knowing how great your grace to us has been. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand for the benediction and then we're going to sing praise God from whom all blessings flow. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.